This is Bob Roark with Business Leaders Podcast. Today, we're incredibly fortunate we have Cam Bishop. He's the Managing Director at Raincatcher. It's a business brokerage and M&A firm who partners with entrepreneurs and business owners that are looking for help in buying or selling remarkable companies. He's the head, he, uh, he's the head, he is the author of Head Noise, Perspectives and Tales from the Executive Suite, and Onward and Upward, Motivational Advice for Career Success. Cam, thank you, sir, from from Kansas City and coming on the show, and we appreciate it. Thank you, Bob. Well, welcome. I'm glad to be here. You know, it's I, I was before the show doing a little bit of homework, and I looked at your long resume of experience. If you could, um, a quick snapshot or thumbnail of your experience prior to here. Yeah, it has been an interesting journey. Uh, I went to the University of Missouri School of Journalism, got a degree in journalism, and came out of school and wanted to become an advertising copywriter, and I thought I'd spend my entire career working in ad agencies. Instead, I started out in a marketing job, writing ad copy in a small publishing firm that was a $7 million business, and uh, it got acquired, and the new owner said, hey, we want you to go out and buy companies and grow this thing. So we grew from 7 million to 13 million to 90 million, and then we got sold again. And we grew from 90 million to 300 million, and then I stepped in as the CEO of that company, and we grew it to 400 million, and it was a profit machine. We were throwing off $100 million a year. We had 2,000 employees in 23 US cities and four or five foreign countries, and it was a crazy ride. But the management structure changed, and I said, you know what, I like this business model. So I took six months off, wrote a business plan, flew around the country pitching the concept to about literally 50 different private equity firms and ended up landing uh, in a very happy relationship with uh, J.P. Morgan Chase Bank's private equity division. At that time, they had about a $6 billion fund they were working out of. And unlike most PE deals, we didn't start with a direct acquisition. We literally started on my kitchen table. And then we went out and sourced a business and as a starter, what they call a platform company. And uh, we, ex we ran the same model I had been running at the previous business, which was what they call in the PE world, a leverage roll-up business, where you buy a platform company, and then you rapidly begin to tuck companies in out of that that are strategic fits for your business. You build it up into a much bigger company, then you exit that deal and gain uh, a benefit from scale that we used to call arbitrage on the exit multiple, meaning if you had averaged all your deals in at let's say six times EBITDA, when they're aggregated together and you resell it, you can sell it for eight times or nine times EBITDA based on the, the scale of the business and the efficiencies that you've driven into the business. So uh, we, I did that and then uh, we exited that business and I consulted as a partner in a consulting firm that did exit and transition planning, because over the course of my career doing these leverage roll-ups, to buy one company, you normally look at 30 to 50 companies before you buy one. So over the years, I've looked at well over 500 different businesses in terms of their offering documents and completed 40 buy-side deals. And then a lot of times we would carve out non-strategic assets from those deals repackage them and sell them off. So at any one time, we might be buying two to five companies and spinning off and selling one, two or three companies. So we were literally a deal machine through that process. 
And what you see is so many business owners, sadly, don't have the right representation and they literally leave money on the table. So if I was paying somebody two, three, four million dollars for their business, and if it had been better packaged, they could have gotten an extra half a million or million dollars. For most people's legacy, that's a lot of money. And I was really, I really developed a passion for that to help business owners. And that's why I went into exit and transition planning, where I also helped uh, broker a few deals for those companies. And I spent the last three years doing a very fascinating, pretty extreme business transformation coupled with a digital transformation for a, a $60 million, interestingly, 501c3 organization that looked, behaved, felt, and competed like a for-profit company. And I was very attracted to the purpose-driven nature of that business. I was under a contract from the board of directors to do that because all the money that business made went to fund scholarships and the endowment for a small private university. So it was a very worthwhile cause, but that contract ended and I said, well, what do I want to do with the rest of my life? I love the transaction business. I love helping business owners and to achieve their life goals and financial goals. And I started looking around for somebody to join and that's where I found Raid Catcher. You know, I, I have so many questions. <laughs> So, so first, what, what made you decide on Raincatcher? Well, you know, after I finished my contract, which was a very, very high stress, extremely difficult work environment, it was like a 10 to 12 hour day for three years. I said, you know, I don't want to go back into another CEO job, but I want to be challenged. I want to be useful. I get bored way too easy. So I said, I want to partner with either a lower middle market investment banking firm or a higher level sophisticated business brokerage. So I spent a month just doing research on firms around the country and identified a list of about 12. And then I began doing deep dive research on one of those to proceed with conversations. You know, obviously it would have to be a two way street, but I was going to be very picky about who I would want to work with. And quite literally, the third firm I came to, fortunately, was Raincatcher. And uh, I was very impressed with their digital presence and the quality of their website. So I reached out to them via their website, got a call back from the two partners, Marlon and Jason. We set up a couple of Zoom calls like this. We sort of hit it off. We, we found that we were very much in alignment on mission, vision, values, the value of corporate culture in a company. And we just hit it off. And they're, they're marvelous people, highly ethical people. And I said, look, I like how this is going. If you're agreeable, I'll drive out nine and a half hours from Kansas City to Denver during COVID and let's meet someplace outdoors. So we met at an outdoor restaurant and we spent literally five hours together. We went through lunch and through dinner. And it was great. And my wife came out with me because I'm very, believe in the family orientation of businesses. She came over after a while. We just hit it off. Then we had to figure out a business model that worked for both of us. And rightfully so, that took some time because they were evolving their business. And we finally got that all ironed out. And we set up uh, Raincatcher Midwest LLC, of which uh, Marlon Jason, the two owners and partners of the old co-firm in Denver are partners and I'm a partner. 
and we're going to focus on building out the Central Standard Time territory in the United States as part of their nationwide build-out strategy. You know, I, I think about, chem, you know, it's the chemistry, you know, and you, you think about the importance of that. In your early career of acquisition, when you were rolling up all the companies uh, initially, how important was chemistry to you when you were looking at acquisition targets? Um, you know, the chemistry portion of the acquisition process is primarily driven through the integration into the business. And that's one of the big mistakes that so many companies make when they acquire a company. I've seen it countless times. In fact, I've done a number of lectures for CFO type organizations on the whole process of mergers, acquisitions, and integrations. Because the primary thought is that you put about 90 to 95% of the effort into uh, identifying the business, doing the due diligence, negotiating the deal, and trying to get the deal closed. And only about 5% of the energy and time goes into the integration plan. And the integration plan is the absolute make it or break it of the deal. It's really not in, uh, with the exception of certain terms and conditions in the contract, it's not in the front end of the business. So we, and as part of our deal machine, developed a very rigorous approach to try to identify the culture of the organization we were acquiring and to avoid the habit and practice that is so prevalent in deals where it goes like this, I'm buying you, therefore I'm right, you're wrong, I'm the boss, you're gonna do it my way. And that's where the breakdown occurs in a lot of these integration deals. But if you approach it from the standpoint of listening to the employees of the company you are acquiring, first of all, they'll tell you everything that you need to know about the strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, and threats of that company. But at the same time, if you really listen, you will hear that they are doing things better than you're doing. So if you have an open mind and can control your own ego in order to adapt and adopt best practices of the company you're acquiring, you end up with a much, not only a larger, but much better overall and more efficiently run total company with a more compatible uh, corporate culture. You know, I, I think about that business owner, uh, that's their dream is an all cash offer. Um, and, I don't think that's all that common. I suspect that earnouts and performance clauses are in that world. For piggybacking on what you just talked about, you know, the culture and so on, if you're the business owner uh, that has an offer that has an earnout, what should you be aware of or, or try to take and see in advance to make sure there's an opportunity to actually achieve your earnout? Uh, well, some of it, of course, is related to the terms of the deal and what the earnout is tied to. Obviously, as a, uh, a seller, if you could get the earnout tied to top line revenue, you're in much better shape than if the earnout is tied to some element of whether it's gross profit or operating profit or net income. Pick whatever profit line you want to take because there are so many elements that, that become out of control 
of the seller of that business, especially if he or she exits the business in conjunction with the deal. But even if they stay on for a retained period of time and still get paid a nerd out against some level of profitability, you no longer control all the decisions if you're a minor minority shareholder in that business or if you're on a consulting contract or you're, you're just an employee. But you are correct, Bob. There are, with a few exceptions on some of the higher end private equity deals, there are a few deals that get done these days that are pure cash deals. They're all either combining a seller note with an earn out or one or the other, if not, if not both. And especially if they're in a small enough range where they're gonna have some kind of an SBA loan backstop against them. Almost all of those, if not all of them, require some element of seri uh, uh, seller carryback on, uh, on a note basis. Not necessarily an earnout basis, but a seller carryback. You know, it, the thing that struck me as you were talking about the chemistry between you and the folks at Raincatcher, you know, I'm thinking about the business owner that maybe has, you know, the luxury of more than one offer. And you're going to go, well, this one's got this and this one's got that and this has got the other. And the reason that they're buying my company is because they theoretically like what I do and how I did it, you know, and then they go, but there's no chemistry or the chemistry is better in one offer than the other, you know, um, I, you know, I don't even know how to frame the question. So for that potential seller, what do you think the critical two or three things you need to have foremost in your mind to make sure you navigate that earnout properly? Yeah, well, um, that, that can be a huge, huge issue, especially if it's a, uh, a long-term independent entrepreneur running his or her business and they're acquired by, say, a private equity firm. Uh, I think it's important for a seller in that kind of a case, especially if they're going to do a kind of a traditional PE deal where they sell off, let's say it's 80% of the business and retain a 20% equity stake, remain involved in the business for the typical whole period of generally three to seven years with five point five year midpoint. You know, it's important for them to do their due diligence on the private equity firm, or if it's family office, the same kind of a situation, uh, by talking to uh, CEOs and former company owners of other firms that that investment banker, that private equity firm acquired. But there's also one other element inside your own business, which is a control factor. You know, many companies have anywhere from one to a handful of what I call key knowledge keepers or, or, and or key points of failure in the organization where somebody is so critical to the organization either because they have a certain type of unique experience, they have the customer relationships, they have some kind of technical capability that is essential and central to the business, a smart seller Will not, will not be penny wise and pound foolish and he will create some kind of a stay bonus or incentive structure for those individuals which accrues over time to essentially put golden handcuffs on them and make it worth their while to stay through that seller's earnout period at a minimum. Mm -hmm. You know, I, what struck me as we're talking and, and I hear so much, I'd be interested in your take you know, we always hear that the business owners don't know what they don't know about selling their company. Why do you 
think there's such a gap between the skill set that they have to run their business and do well running their business, but they're really unaware of how to transition or exit their business? Well, that's a great question and sort of ties in with the question we get from company owners that talk to us about representing them in the sale of their business. And you are correct. They don't know what they don't know because probably, uh, I don't, I've never seen an actual statistic, but based on experience, I'd say probably 95% of business owners have never bought a company or sold a company before. So they have no idea what's involved in the process, how much work it is, how much time it takes, and how complex it is. It is a case of you don't know what you don't know. You know, in management, so I've, I've been a CEO of companies for about 35 of my 40 plus years in business. And I always worked on the philosophy that you uh, know what you know how to do well and you do it. And you know uh, what you don't know how to do well and you find an expert to do it for you. So in the management world, you know, I certainly know accounting, but I'm no CFO expert. So I bring in a top level expert. I know more than enough to be dangerous about uh, human resources and all the laws and regulations around that, but I still bring in a top-notch human resources executive. Same with my technical operation, a head of IT. Uh, and it's really no different. Um, you know, uh, there's that old saying of, of, in court, he who represents himself has a fool for a lawyer. And there are certain parts of that that apply in uh, the sale of a company. And there is a large element also involved with that of just uh, basic risk mitigation of having a knowledgeable professional represent you in the business from all the technical aspects of the deal, as well as someone to look out for your best interest and help you divorce the emotional aspects that go with selling a company. It's a highly stressful, highly emotional process. And it's very easy as a business owner to make decisions based on emotion rather than solid business principle. And that's where we play a critical role. You know, again, so many different ways to go. You know, there's the transaction fatigue factor. And I'm sure you've seen folks, you go, I'm just worn out. I'm done. I don't want to play anymore. And I, you know, for that business owner, and you've seen with all the acquisitions where the business owners responding to requests. How do you see that business owner when they're in the transaction process? How well do they do running their company during that process? Well, that's a great question because the challenge of selling a company is, and that's also one of the things we try to keep an eye on and monitor those owners on is that running their business is in and of itself a full-time job. And packaging a company to sell is also a full-time job. And if you don't have somebody that's controlling his, and doing the work on as many elements of that as possible outside the firm, you can become consumed with it as a business owner. Take your eye off the ball and you can see deterioration in the performance of your business while you're over here focused on trying to package and sell the business and doing something you don't know how to do. To make, to compound that problem, a lot of times uh, an owner will uh, try to backstop with their attorney and an accountant. And usually an attorney that a company works with is not a transaction attorney. They're not an M&A attorney. They may be 
you know, they may be primarily an HR law specialist or uh, just kind of a general business specialist. But, um, you know, uh, it's another case of penny wise pound foolish not to be represented by a special legal counsel that knows all the intricacies and ins and outs of the terms and factors that can make or break a deal because most deals die not because of the price, but because of the terms. You know, I, that's, I think, you know, if, if folks are listening, I mean, I've heard that enough and I think it's understated or underappreciated on the, on the price versus the terms because people get enamored by the price and then they fail to really observe the fine print terms, I think. Yeah. Or they just don't understand the ramifications of those things. I mean, how many people have ever had to deal with uh, baskets and caps and escrows and long-term liabilities and, and, uh, and, and certain uh, financial performance benchmarks that trigger certain factors in the contract? And what are the elements of the, uh, the non-compete and the no solicit, no hire elements in the contract? And what does that, what do all of those mean for that business owner? And, you know, those are things that can significantly impact total value received on a deal. You know, for the business owner that's out there and says, you know, I'm, I'm ready to sell my business. I think I'll do it myself. You know, there's, there's a buddy of mine that may want to buy my business and, you know, maybe the potential purchaser will just show up. I think the business owners undervalue or underappreciate the contacts that folks like yourself have and Raincatcher has of potential acquirers. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's one of the things that attracted me to Raincatcher is, and I'd never seen this before because of the level of di digital sophistication that uh, Raincatcher employs both to market companies for sale and to attract a potential uh, attract and qualify potential buyers. I think right now we have a qualified buyer database of about 8,000 names and it's growing by more than a hundred a month because it's a very frothy market right now. And interestingly, we actually, well, th this company has a fantastic track record. Again, I just recently joined, so I can't take any credit for it. I mean, I think their close rate on deals where the seller signs an engagement letter is something like 85%. And that's off the charts. And that's partly because of the very disciplined and rigorous process and team approach they take to working with those clients and vetting those sellers. And the same goes for the buyer side of things. And about 70% of the deals the firm completes in a year are sold to people or companies or private equity groups, investor groups, family offices, whomever, uh, that, that reside in that, in that database. You know, I, I think you touched on some, some stuff about a value add bringing to the table and, and helping the company, the business owner, prep the company for and recognize the value drivers that they need to tend to. Would you comment on that? Yeah, you know, again, business owners don't realize what, uh, that there are so many factors. I, I could probably sit down, it would take me a few minutes, but I could probably write out about, I'm going to guess at least 20 different value drivers 
that can impact a business um, and, and either enhance the value or detract from the value. I mean, you know, one of the most uh, common ones we see are sloppy financials. If they don't have good financial record keeping, if they don't have good historical data, if they're running on a essentially a checking account uh, payment basis where they just get a bill and they write a check out of their checking account because they have the luxury of having enough cash on hand. If they don't have a full charter of accounts and allocated expenses and they're not doing cash flow statements and balance sheets, those are definitely, that's one of the single most significant detractors of business value. The other one is, uh, and probably number one is the degree of reliance on the, uh, the sustainability and success of a company by the owner, him or herself. They either hold all of the critical knowledge in the business or they hold the primary uh, customer relationships or the, the company is dependent on their talent or technical knowledge in some form and they don't have any kind of a succession plan uh, behind them. You know, that's but, the, the old thing. Anymore. You know, that's the old job versus business uh, thing. You know, and I would love for you to expand on the difference, you know, the markers that a business owner can do I have a job or do I have a business? What were the one or two things that you would see right off the bat that would tell that owner you have a job, not a business? Yeah, you know, that's, that's interesting. Uh, for a couple of semesters, I actually taught a course at a local junior college that was sponsored by the SBA. And one of the, one day we focused, the whole lecture for the day was talking about, uh, do you have a job or do you have a business? And it's interesting, I think we probably had 30 or 40 small business owners in the room. And you could see the reaction on their face that would just light up like, oh my God, I, I never realized that. I don't really have a business, I have a job. And a job is a business or a job is uh, a source of money that is solely dependent on your skills and talent. For example, somebody who is in a solo practice consulting firm, you know, they may be billing whatever it is, $500,000 million a year and taking that money home, but they don't have anything to sell because the business is solely dependent on them. And I mean, that's just a typical example. If there isn't a business that can be perpetuated if you got hit by a bus, then, then you really have uh, just a job and not a business. And the other factor is that I would lecture heavily on that, again, virtually no one in this room had considered is, if you're starting a business or if you're an early stage in a business, you need to be thinking at that time about what your end game is. How are you going to exit that business? Because everybody in the world is going to exit their business. They're either going to do it voluntarily standing up or they're going to do it by getting carted out on a stretcher, but it's going to happen. And the tragedy tragedy occurs when there is no exit plan. There is no succession plan. The, the stories I know of are just heart wrenching about businesses that had true net worth and the owner who was healthy one day has a heart attack, drops dead, employees uh, who had customer contact relationships have no direction because there's nobody there to run the business and they walk out the door 
take key customer relationships and the value of that business completely drains away and there's nothing left there for the remaining you know, spouse and, and children and, and, and heir, uh, those who would otherwise be an heir to the financial success that that owner had built up over usually several decades. You know, the, the, there's a statistic I think out there, somewhere around 80% of a business owner's net worth is in their business. And you know, and I think about the analogy to selling a home. If you go to sell your home, you know, the kitchen, the bathroom, the best place to spend the money. You typically have somebody, a professional come by and look at your property and go, you need to stage it this way. You need to clean this up. You need to fix that up. And for the business owner that thinks they can sell the business by themselves, I don't know why there's such a disconnect between the same things that you do for a piece of real estate or anything else that you're going to sell and they don't do that or have a checklist. You guys have a fairly robust system for, for determining potential value of a company, as I understand it. Yeah, we, we really do. Again, it was one of the other things that attracted to me at a firm, you know, at, at no cost to a, a company who might be interested in selling, we have a very interesting tool called value builder and they can take this questionnaire and uh, we don't own that business. We actually license that, that system and technology. And uh, uh, we uh, uh, run those tests and then we will review that. And there are a series of criteria and scores that can help them show what their value is uh, and where they need to, to work on their business. And those who have on a high enough score and who might be interested in continuing uh, with uh, consideration of a process to have them have us represent them in selling their business, uh, we'll take an even deeper dive and do what we call a broker opinion of value for them, which is, I'm actually working on one of those right now. And we literally, uh, there's three of us working on it right now. We have a a specialist who's a financial analyst and doing uh, valuation work, you know, we'll probably have 30 or 40 man hours of work preparing this presentation uh, for a prospective buyer. And we don't charge for that, that service. Uh, we, we actually are somewhat unique in that uh, we put our skin in the game with that business owner and we only get paid if they get paid. So we get paid a success fee on the back end of a deal. So there's very little risk financial risk up front for a seller, other than perhaps a retainer that we, you know, we want them to have a little bit of skin in the game, but not a material amount. You know, in the exit planning space, you know, I think there's a mindset that exit planning preparation is different than running a business or that the exit planning uh, fundamentals are different than running a business. For you, what's your opinion on on the exit planning value building steps versus just running your business? Well, again, this was another topic I hit on that really resonated with people in the SBA course I talk. You know, the vast majority of business owners spend somewhere between 90 and 95% of their time uh, working in the business and only about 5% of their time working on the business. And exit and transition planning is about working on the business. The kinds of decisions and moves that you can make that help extract additional value out of the company. 
just as I mentioned earlier, if, if you're a, uh, if the business is solely relying on you as the owner of the business, you're in trouble. You're, we would counsel you that you're going to need a succession plan and you're going to have to invest into someone who can succeed you or grow alongside you. So that if when you leave the business, there's someone there who can take it over because the buyer is going to look at that and they're either not going to want to buy your business or they're going to deeply discount it to offset their presumption of risk that goes along with buying a business that is so dependent on one or one or two individuals. You know, I, the things that I, I think are interesting, you know, is uh, client concentration risk. Hey, you know, we just went out, we landed the biggest client that we've ever had. You know, they're now 50% of our revenue. Our margins aren't that great, but our gross revenues are really amazing now that we landed this big client. What does that do to the value of a business if you do something like that? Yeah, well, ironically, you might actually increase both your top line and your profit line, but reduce your value as a company because of the level of risk in that customer concentration. I would say that's probably uh, value driver number three after uh, owner, the reliance of the business on the owner and sloppy financials. Then comes customer concentration, or it could be customer turnover. Yeah, it's, I think the business owner has their hands full. You know, first, can I get the business started? Do I have the courage to get it going? You started a business on your kitchen table. So your spouse has to kind of be along for the ride as well and be supportive. You know, and, and then they run it, get it going, and they finally achieve some level of success. And it doesn't surprise me, I think, at this juncture, that they really don't understand the value drivers. You know, they've got, you know, I've got my family boat, I've got some vacations in the company on the balance sheet. And I'm sure you've seen that a lot through your acquisition career. Oh my gosh, I've, I've got a lot of <laughs> crazy stories. The, the term that I've always used for that, we, we would call it EOB for excess owner benefit. Uh, in fact, you're in Denver. We were buying a company in Denver one time that was, uh, they office down near the Centennial Airport off of Arapahoe Road. And the reason their offices were there was because the owner of the company, it was a very successful company. The owner was a pilot and he owned three, not one, not two, but three airplanes. And all three of those airplanes were charged to the company. And anytime he went anywhere, he charged the you know, the flying fees and the gas and the hangar time, whatever else, to the company. And, you know, that's a pretty steep cost to the company. But, I mean, we've seen people uh, in construction business where they will have their crews go remodel a room in their home and, you know, charge that off to their, allocate that expense to the company. And, of course, tons of things with boats being charged to the company, elaborate vacations. Oh, those are recreation platforms. Recreation platforms. Recreation platforms, yes. And then, of course, there's the favorite one where there are all these family members on the payroll, none of whom ever come to the office or actually have a job description or a functional job. I mean, those are just a few, but there's some pretty creative ones out there. You know, as, as you look back over your acquisition career, and you know, I was thinking about the 
business that you bought that you most admired how they had it put together? So it was a simple acquisition contrasted with the business that you bought that required the most work. What were the key characteristics of either? Um, you know, I would say it would be a blend of a few things. Uh, usually if that, if they were working really well, they had a strong brand to begin okay. with. They had well-documented systems and processes. In other words, they were kind of a pretty buttoned up organization. There wasn't a, a lot of sloppiness. There wasn't the kind of things you see that are traditional devaluing factors in a company. Their employees were well-trained. Uh, they were well-motivated. Uh, th those I think would be probably the most uh, critical and they had a high customer satisfaction level. So we didn't have to go in and put out a lot of fires and fix a lot of customer relationship issues. You know, as, as I think about your years of experience and I think about the business owner that's going, well, why should I take and hire someone like you? I think the better question is why should, I mean, they can't afford not to. I mean, well, there's opportunity to leave money on the table. I had a conversation with uh, a company that's considering whether or not to use us. And uh, they've been approached by, um, I don't know, one, two or three companies that said, hey, we'd like to buy you. But if you don't know what your market value is, uh, you could do an easy transaction. Again, it could become Pennywise pound foolish where you know, if they offer you $10 million for your business, but somebody else would offer you 12, uh, our, the, the fees they would pay us are money well spent in that, in that particular case, not including the other elements of risk mitigation that go along with all that. Um, you know, and working for a private equity firms for so, year, so many years, I mean, I've worked with some of the major ones besides uh, JP Morgan Chase, I've worked with Colbert, Travis Roberts, one of the other six plus billion dollar funds and a couple of other uh, smaller funds, private equity funds for deals of that size, those guys absolutely love to find a company that's not in an auction process because they know they are always going to get a better deal. It's, it's human nature. If you've ever been to any kind of an auction, whether it's an antique auction or an art auction or a car auction, there's an element of competition involved there that drives prices up until they reach a maximum reasonable level of value for a business with the, that firm's particular characteristic. And you don't know what that is unless you're soliciting potentially multiple bidders. You know, we, we talked about this a little bit before the show. You know, as you look back over your career, you know, there might have been one mistake maybe somewhere along the career, which at the time seemed to be pretty profound or remarkable, but stood you in good stead later that helped you be better at what you did. Has one of those come to mind for you? Oh, yeah, absolutely. And it sort of ties in what we've been talking about, you know, Bob, with corporate culture. Uh, the company I worked for, when they told us, you're going to grow and you're going to grow by going out and doing acquisitions, we've got the money, get started. Well, they didn't train us on how to do any of that. They just said, go do it. It was literally the proverbially equipment, the proverbial equivalent of taking a six-month-old baby, dropping him in the swimming pool and say, swim. 
Well, that baby instinctively is going to know how to come out, but they're not necessarily going to know how to do it right. So quite literally, the very first deal I ever did, which our, was the first one our company ever did, only coincidentally because it's the one we found first, uh, I was responsible for. And we did what we thought was a good due diligence on it. It was a small deal. I think we paid $1.2 for the business, which by the standards of what we were doing was tiny. It's a lot of money, but it was tiny for, for that scale. And um, about six months later, we had that single point of customer relationship in that organization. It was the owner of the business. And he couldn't deal with a more corporate environment. He said, I'm out. And we thought, well, we're not worried. We've got a, a backup for him. Uh, but we did not properly assess his skill set. And he could not sustain those customer relationships. And within about 18 months, we killed that business. And the key takeaway from that was, we, we did all the, we dotted the I's and crossed the T's on all the accounting and, and uh, you know, everything that you could add, subtract, multiply, and divide. But we did not properly assess the human aspects of that business and how that was going to relate to integration on the back end. And, you know, they always say that you oftentimes learn far more from your, your failures than you do from your successes. But we never screwed up an integration after that deal because we completely changed our process about how we evaluate and assess culture and the talent and the fit for those individuals in our organization. You know, they say tuition is expensive, you know, and, and I think, you know, for you, you know, you've taught in, in, you know, in the SBA classes, you've taught at the junior college level you've worked with your teams and built your teams and taught your team's process and, and systems and so on. And, you know, and I think about the resource that you can bring to the table for that business owner, you know, and, you know, I, I think before we come to a close here, um, is there anything about the transaction process that you would like to share with that business owner that I failed to ask? Um, I think there a few quick things so I know we're short on time. Number one is highly stressful for that business owner. It is a tremendous amount of work. There is much uncertainty. It takes a long time to do. In a perfect world, you might get a deal done from the day you sign an engagement letter. If you're super lucky, you might get it done in four months. The average is somewhere between six and nine months. And I've seen them go for well over a year, depending on complicating factors. The other factor is what that business owner needs to think about in his or own personal life. What does life look like after that company sold? And that's part of the reason I'm in this business is to help them because I've seen way too many business owners emotionally crash and burn. Many owners battle depression after they sell their company because they're so consumed with running their business and their social structure is often dependent on their business either through vendors or employees or what have you, that they don't really have a life outside that company and they haven't thought about how to build that. So we actually spend a lot of time talking with them about that part of the process 
along with the technical aspects of, of conducting a transaction. You know, I would, I would second that thought. I think the statistics are somewhere around 75% of all business owners that exit their business wish they hadn't within 12 months. Because yeah. they, you know, and particularly for the ones that haven't created the vision for post-sale, yeah. you know, is what we see. So, you know, you know, I, first, I really appreciate you taking the time and, and sharing some of your wisdom from all the years of doing this. You know, there's talking and doing, and you've been in the doing phase for a long time. You know, for the business owner out there that's considering bringing his company to market, you know, the, the biggest mistake I think you could make is not reaching out to Cam. I mean, there's, it's a phone call. Uh, and so with that being said, Cam, how do they find you? Where are you on social media? Yeah, well, we're www.raincatcher.com. That's the fastest way in the organization. Or they can reach me at cameron.bishop at raincatcher.com. Or they can find me on LinkedIn. Well, Cameron, I, uh, first I must say thank you for being kind enough to send me your books. Uh, they were a good read with a lot of information. So for the folks out there that are looking for some tips, uh, want to pick up the books or reach out to Cameron to get the books. And I thank you again for taking time out of your afternoon. And um, for the business owners that have the opportunity to work with you, I think they're fortunate indeed. Yep. If they would like to have us, we can help. Well, I think on that note, Cameron, thank you so much for your time and uh, look forward to catching up with you soon. Yeah, thank you, Bob, for good to be with you. You bet. Bye.